If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. She was offered a place at the St. Petersburg Conservatoire at the age of 16, and I've managed to find in the Russian State Historical Archive in St. Petersburg the correspondence between her mother and the Conservatoire. She was too young, so she started as an external, externum, as an external pupil of the Conservatoire. And it, it was beautiful to see her mother's letter in her handwriting to the Conservatoire asking for them to consider her for a place. That was Graham Griffiths talking about the Russian composer Leo Kadir Kasparova. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This Thursday, the 8th of March, is International Women's Day. And to mark the occasion, BBC Radio 3 are going to be airing a concert featuring music from five of history's forgotten female composers. In today's podcast, we're going to be hearing about the extraordinary life of one of the composers, Leo Kadir Kasparova whose career coincided with the revolutionary era in Russia. Her story has been researched by Dr Graham Griffiths of City University, who is one of the experts working on the project with Radio 3. He spoke to our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman. Well, Graham, you've been studying um, Kasparova for over four years. Um, So who actually was she and, and how did you first hear about her? 
Well, you're quite right. I have been studying Kasparova intensely for four years, but I first uh, became interested in her, ooh, 15 years ago when I was uh, studying for my doctorate at Oxford. Um, I was writing a thesis on Stravinsky, and I was particularly interested in Stravinsky's musical education in Russia because it was something that he had sort of glossed over um, quite fiercely and really put people off even asking about it all through his life. And, and really he dismissed uh, everybody in Russia um, during his youth and early years. He'd, he'd really sort of made it clear that he hadn't gained anything from any of them, which is extraordinary considering he started with Rimsky-Korsakov, for example. But I was particularly interested <clears throat> at the time, excuse me, um, in his piano music. And so I was very taken by a comment that Stravinsky made in his autobiography that um, despite uh, criticizing his, his piano teacher for being antiquated and a rather boring person, um, she did give him two very valuable things. And these really were the only positives that we can get from Stravinsky about his education. Um, this fascinated me. He said that his piano teacher, and he didn't even mention her by name, he didn't have that courtesy to mention her by name and thank her by name. He just said, my piano teacher was really, really antiquated, but she gave me an excellent piano technique and a sense of métier, a true sense of the, of a, the profession of a, of a pianist and um, significantly a, a pianist composer because she was, even at the age of 28 when she was teaching Stravinsky, a very successful uh, concert pianist and composer playing her music uh, across Russia and even venturing into Western Europe, Berlin and, and, and London and so forth like that. So from her, from her example, he... Uh, later, and it, well, it took Stravinsky another 20 years, uh, quite honestly, to become as, as successful as she was as a pianist composer. This was after um, all his famous ballets, The Rite of Spring and so forth. Much, much later, when Stravinsky reached the age of 40, he decided he would relaunch himself as a neoclassical composer, and he would really do it, as I say, from the, from the soapbox of the piano bench. He wrote piano music that he wanted to play himself. And with this music, he launched himself as a neoclassical composer. And it was at that point, and this was the music I was studying at Oxford, um, at that point, I began to make that connection, a very, very strong connection with his neoclassical piano music and the kind of piano education he'd received from this very remarkable person um, to whom he paid tribute. So, he, I mean, he wasn't particularly complimentary about her then, but... Um, why do you think her musical contributions have, have been overlooked, really, until until now? Well, you see, the Russian Revolution uh, turned life upside down. Um, and if you were lucky to, uh, to survive, um, you had to be grateful for that. I think it, it was that traumatic for most people. Um, I mean, the story of, of Shostakovich's eternal conflict with with Stalin and with the official policy on on the style of musical composition. I mean, this is very well known, very well documented, but uh, much less well known is the fate of much humbler musicians like Kasperova. Um, before the revolution, she was fated in... St. Petersburg as one of the leading lights of the musical scene. She was very well known, loved as a person, um, a very close friend of 
um, Balakirev, the great uh, Russianist composer, um, and uh, Glazonov, who was the principal of the St. Petersburg Conservatoire, very well known to Rimsky-Korsakov, so the whole circle of them. She, she performed um, many of their piano sonatas and so forth in first performance. In fact, she gave the premiere of, of their works. And um, significantly, um, a lot of her own music was performed and she was even published. She was published in, in, in St. Petersburg. Um, but when the revolution came, she fled um, St. Petersburg, or Pet uh, Petrograd, as it was, and um, not a note, if you can believe it, not a note of her music I can trace was ever performed again uh, from the time of the Russian Revolution to her death in 1940. Uh, she gave a few concerts in Moscow, but she was always engaged to play the sonatas by by the greats, you know, Glazunov and Balakirev and so forth. Um, she, not a note of her own music was played, and this must have been very, very hard on her. Um, but it, it's linked to her extraordinary life story. When you are researching uh, a historical subject, and musicology, for me, is at its most exciting when you're doing that, um, you can have an enormous stroke of luck. And this happened to me in 2014 when I first went to Russia. Um, Kasperov is mentioned in a very important book called um, a two-volume study called Stravinsky and the Russian Traditions. This is a tremendously exhaustive and brilliant academic study. It mentions Kasperov uh, saying that, you know, there is... He was, she was his Stravinsky piano teacher. There is talk of a symphony even by this, but the, the, the tone is a little bit, this is rather unlikely, you know, <laughs> this is rather unlikely that this piano teacher could have written a symphony. Um, and when I went to uh, St. Petersburg in April 2014, my first port of call was, of course, the conservatoire. Um, I wanted to have access to the library uh, just to begin my um, archaeology my excavations <laughs> and um, I had a meeting with the arranged with the principal of the conservatoire I mean you can't just walk in and go into the library and say can I look at this no you, I wanted to do it properly and obviously I had arranged a meeting with the with the director and, but when I arrived she was a little bit held up and uh, I was asked to wait for, for for five or ten minutes and I asked the person who was hosting me there, I said, could I just pop into the library just for a second as we're just standing right outside the library? I have a question. I popped in and said, I said to the librarian, um, what do you have of Kasperova? And of course, she looked at me completely blank and said, said, who? I've never heard of this one. I said, Kasperova, and I wrote it down. And she came back in a couple of minutes with the symphony. Wow. Oh, so it exists then? Yeah. She came back with the symphony uh, with a beautiful and florid dedication to Glazunov written on the front by Kasparov. So, so if you like, uh, I, I was enormously fortunate at that point. Now, having started um, with the crown jewels, if you like, I, I had to piece together her biography and find other works. And this this has been a, a, a very arduous, exhausting, but thrilling journey. And I've been to Russia now six times, uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow, and um, every scrap of composition, every piece I found of hers, is a beautiful work. It's 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 absolutely 
um, wonderful that her music is now being performed again. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What sort of uh, background does, does she have? Where were her family from? Well, she was born in the tiny little provincial town called Lyubing in the uh, oblast or the district of Yaroslav, which is to the east of um, St. Mm-hmm. Petersburg, s- southeast, really. Um, and her father seems to be quite undistinguished. He, he'd been a lieutenant in the Russian army and had taken early retirement for some reason and and, and bought a small holding in in this very rural area, a population of maybe two or three thousand in the whole area, a tiny little village. But her mother, Maria, was an extraordinarily gifted woman. And in the tradition of of Russian mothers, she was uh, not only very, very cultural, uh, culturally aware, but she was very brilliant at, at ensuring that her talented uh, offspring spring should receive the very best education. I'm thinking, actually, as, as, as a model here, the mother of um, uh, Christina, the mother of the two Rubinstein brothers, Anton Rubinstein, who founded the St. Petersburg Conservatoire and was Kasperova's piano teacher. I mean, she was in his elite piano class. She was one of the most brilliant pianists under Rubinstein. And Anton Rubinstein is regarded to this day as one of the greatest pianists who ever lived. Um, And his brother, uh, Nikolai, founded the Moscow Conservatoire. So crumbs, you know, those two brothers. But their mother directed them. The mother took them around Europe uh, on tour, to, to a bit like, if you like, the Mozart family took young Mozart. She took those two boys around Europe. Now, um, I can't just slip my mind now. The name of uh, one of the early teachers of um, the Rubinstein boys was also um, found and sought out and located by Kasperova's mother. And Kasperova had some lessons from her, but originally she sent her to Moscow. And for some reason, I don't quite know why, I'm still trying to find out, maybe she wasn't offered a place at the Moscow Conservatoire, but she was um, offered a place at the St. Petersburg Conservatoire at the age of 16. And I've, I've managed to find in the Russian State Historical Archive in St. Petersburg the, the correspondence between her mother and the, and the Conservatoire. And she's asking uh, for her daughter to be looked after and given accommodation close by. And, and she was. And to be to start, she was too young, so she started as an external, externum, as an external pupil of the Conservatoire. And it, it was beautiful to see her mother's letter in her handwriting to the Conservatoire asking for them to consider her for a place. Um, so she was precocious as a poet, uh, as a linguist, and as a pianist to be offered a place at the age of 16. Tremendous. 
And and how did her career sort of progress from there? Well, she graduated with full colours um, at uh, as a concert pianist and uh, two years later as a composer and uh, she received i've seen her diplomas actually it's rather rather lovely because the, the diplomas are signed by a whole bevy of the most famous names of russian music including uh, rimsky korsakov he signs the diploma and liadov who was um, if you remember the person first invited by Diaghilev to write the Firebird. And when, Liad, uh, when Liadov turned it down, uh, Diaghilev scratched his head and thought, well, I'll, I'll try this young lad, Stravinsky, who's just uh, written this amazing piece called Fireworks, which is just a couple of minutes long for a huge orchestra, but very, very exciting. Um, I'll ask him, and you know, the rest is history, as they say. Accident, the violent accident of history, that uh, that banished her name from from the books and from the records. Um, the first of all, the um, the Russian Revolution um, uh, dislocated her from Saint Petersburg, and of course, the city in its former glory never existed again uh, after the revolution. Her place in it, and her audience, her market, her community of cultured folk was scattered to the four corners if they survived. Um, in Moscow, she, uh, as I say, had absolutely no response there. And um, th there's a, another curious twist, if I might just mention it. Um, just before the Russian Revolution, um, she, you know, at, if you like, at the height of her fame and success that she was ever going to get, um, she was still teaching the piano um, furiously and very dil diligently, and um, uh, she acquired a new pupil, an adult pupil, called Sergei Andropov, who, um, with whom she fell passionately in love. Um, and she was 44, and I think probably, as, as can happen, she had dedicated herself to her art with such um, intensity, she had sort of lost the plot, if you like, or n never had the opportunity to form a relationship. And um, it's this situation presented itself, um, and they were married within a very, very short time, within weeks. And um, the extraordinary thing is that her pupil was um, a Bolshevik revolutionary and a personal friend of Lenin. Not something you'd expect. Not at all. No, I was yeah quite shocked by that. You'd expect uh, her piano pupils all to come from uh, aristocratic families or uh, musical families, simpler, humbler, but at least with, with cultural background. Um, but this man had an, an extraordinary, uh, exciting, vivid history as um, a member of Lenin's Iskra group. This is a group that operated outside Russia, um, 
publishing anti-Tsarist literature and getting it back into Russia. And he, he was, he'd been arrested. In fact, extraordinary. I was just working it out. When Kasperova premiered her piano concerto in A minor in St. Petersburg in 1901, her future husband was incarcerated in the Paul and Peter Fortress on the other side of the Neva River. Gosh. I mean, what, 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 how do, do we know what brought him to be having uh, lessons with her? Well, um, I don't yet know a lot about him except from um, sources from Rostov-on-Don I've made connections with and uh, they quote they quote Kasperova as saying uh, that she was completely captivated by this brilliantly intelligent man who already spoke four languages uh, was intensely musical and uh, was obviously a great intellect and a, a very fascinating man indeed and uh, that's all we really know. He came from the Caucasus area and had been involved in the revolution in 1905 in the Caucasus. And, um, but he'd spent um, the 10 years since that revolution, the first revolution, you know, of 1905, he spent the 10 years um, going around, or, or, or forever really escaping uh, from... Um, being chased by the Tsarist police, basically, um, who were after him. And he even um, lived in London and operated a, a printing press here um, at, and sending this anti-Tsarist literature back to Russia. So there, there are uh, many avenues of research still on, on my desk here to pursue. But uh, Kashbarova married... Uh, Andropov, and I think he, we have to thank him for um, helping her out, um, taking her out of the danger zone and taking her to the south of Russia and eventually guiding her to Moscow, where he, this is the extraordinary thing, it seems that he uh, worked at the Kremlin um, as a mathematics teacher to the Red Army commanders who were given not just military training, but obviously a general education <laughs> there. Um, and he taught mathematics at, in the Kremlin and uh, walked home um, 20 minutes up the road um, to their flat. And there was Leukadia um, composing her little secret pieces and hiding them under the floorboards. Who, who, who knows how they survived? But uh, she died 1940. Uh, he died 1956. And um, her nephew, um, Alexei, um, came to live in the flat, um, probably from 1956 when, uh, when Kashwerva's husband died, until he died in 1971. Um, and I've been to the flat. I found it. I found it. And that's, that's uh, quite a tale, for maybe for another occasion. But it's, um, it, it, it's a, uh, I feel... Um, in in my bones, when I when I first when I found the symphony, I told you very very early on, and then piano works and chamber works and songs and every work that falls into my hands, I I read it through and I hear it as as I read it and I think to myself, this is utterly beautiful. Um, this is not merely an academic's um, indulgence uh, to have found uh, to be working on a composer that nobody else has worked on yet with a view to writing a, a, an article in, in a journal. I, uh, it's far from that. I, I do 
sincerely believe that her music has the quality um, to conquer the hearts of musical audiences absolutely if it's utterly beautiful. How unusual would that marriage have been? Do we know what reactions were to, to the marriage between, between the two? I don't know. I, I don't know yet at all um, what reactions there would have been to that. Because presumably he would have had split loyalties between his new, lo- his new wife and his old life. Yes. Well, it wasn't just his old life. His his life continued um, as a as a Bolshevik within the within within the Kremlin and so forth. And I think um, that would indicate, as far as I can tell, talking to folk, this would indicate that he would have kept her rather a secret. Uh, so- socially, they could not have attended events at the Kremlin together um, because she was not. Um, po- a member of the party in that sense, um, and she was, if you like, uh, very much a representative of the of the Tsarist world. Her music belonged to that period. In fact, when they first met, Kasperva, uh, and I've seen the correspondence, absolutely fascinating. She was applying for a job as music teacher at the Smolny Institute in St. Petersburg. Now, this is an institute founded by Catherine the Great um, for. Uh, I think it's it's official title is for the education of noble maidens. These are the pupils were all girls, and most of them aristocratic, many of them princesses and so forth, tsarinas and so forth. Um, extremely elite group. And she was actually accepted as a piano teacher there. Um, and immediately after looking at the chronology of it, immediately after meeting Andropov, um, she sent another letter in um, resigning from her post before she'd even started to teach there. Um, and at first I thought, well, this is obviously because of his political views. He would never have approved of that. But I think now he probably saved her life because uh, he whisked her out of, of St. Petersburg um, soon after, almost immediately after the revolution. And that institute, the Smolny Institute, um, was closed down. Uh, where everybody went, nobody knows if they survived. But the building became the um, headquarters for the uh, Central Party, uh, for the Bolshevik Party. And Lenin had his offices in there. So, I mean, there's no way <laughs> Kasparov could possibly have kept going there. You know, it was a very, very dangerous situation. And very, very probably Andropov um, saved her life by getting her out of that quick and disassociating herself completely um, from you know, from the records, she was never actually a teacher there. Otherwise, she would have been persecuted. What do we know of their of their life in hiding? You know, during the revolution, do we do you know anything? Yes, about that. N- nothing yet. Nothing. It's rather frustrating. There's. I I found a a biographical, um, a biographical couple of paragraphs by um, one of the archivists actually who sorted out her archive when her nephew dropped it off. Um, she sort of sorted it out, and she wrote a little paragraph or two. Um, with it, saying that um, they left Saint, they left Petrograd and went to um, Rostov-on-Don, which is in the Caucasus. It's the regional capital in the south. Um, and, it, and the paragraph says where she presumably gave piano lessons and concerts, as you'd imagine. However, I've written to the conservatoire there and um, they've written back to say they have absolutely no record of her 
ever teaching or working or giving a concert in Rostov on Don, and they don't have any of her scores there. So that, that has, for the moment, drawn a complete blank. And it makes me think that maybe for a couple of years, she just laid low there, you know, right after the revolution. I mean, there was civil war as well as revolution. I mean, everything was going on. Um, and the end of the First World War as well. I mean, everything was absolutely chaotic. And um, I think probably she stayed in that area with her husband's family until things calmed down a bit. And then um, they moved further north back up to Moscow um, and established themselves there. So there's, as I say, the biographical details are slowly emerging, uh, but still need a lot of confirmation. But the music doesn't need confirmation. The musical scores that, that are now uh, being published and performed are there uh, in all their glory. That was Graham Griffiths, and the musical clips you heard were also performed by him. They were excerpts from In the Midst of Nature, composed by Kasparova. You can listen to the full suite on YouTube by searching for the name of the piece and its composer. And as I mentioned earlier, the special BBC Radio 3 concert, featuring music from all five female composers, airs this Thursday, the 8th of March, at 7.30pm. OK, so that is about it for today, but please do join us on Thursday when we'll be speaking to the screenwriter and producer Michael Hurst, whose CV includes some of the most acclaimed history dramas of recent years. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 